Persian king, Ashuerus, has a long series of parties, banquets. Um, I mean, long series. They probably went over a course of many months as he brought in different leaders and rulers in the nation. And the wine flowed freely, and he got smashing drunk. And in one of the moments where he was very much given to the spirit of alcohol, he wants to show off his queen, Vashti. And so he sends word that she come in all her royal finery to come and be seen by the men that he's with, all of which are stinking drunk. Now, don't hear this in the context of, hey, I want you to come see my honored queen. No, hear this in the context of he wants to sort of show her off like a trophy. And probably there's debauchery in, in, even in that without getting in detail. So the scripture just says he wanted to show off how pretty she was. Well, Vashti says no. Pretty bold. And it makes the king mad. Now, there's all kinds of things here that we could talk about, one of which is that his, his, um, his counselors get a little worried. They go, well, if your queen tells you no, our wives might tell us no. You can't let this stand. You've got to bow up on her, kick her out, divorce her, banish her from the kingdom. And in fact, that's exactly what he does. At, at some point, maybe after he was sobered up and he realized what he had done, he regretted that, but it was too late. And maybe because the, the counselors who uh, encouraged him to banish his queen realized that they might be in trouble for being the guys that, that suggested that, they came up with a new scheme. And they said, all right, king, here's what you do. We'll go out into all the kingdom, and we will round up all of the attractive virgins for you to have as a harem. And, and, and that'll, that'll satisfy your sensual lust. It'll satisfy you. It'll make you happy again. Now, there's a great case to be made that, in fact, even as he was able to have excess in every part of his life, he never had his needs, his needs nor his wants satisfied. He was a man very much unsatisfied. But that's what they did. And as they were gathering up, and this is, by the way, not out of their free will. It was compulsory. They went and they gathered up. Uh, young virgins all throughout the kingdom, of which Esther was one. When she was gathered, she hid that she was a Jew. She didn't want to divulge that. It probably would have put her in a very precarious, maybe life-threatening situation. And she's put in, in the harem for the king. And there, there's a, a, a ritual of, of uh, a beauty. The scripture calls it a beautification ritual, probably lasted around a year. Maybe they were being taught some customs and, and those things are the Persians. There's probably were some, 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 some beautification treatments or whatever, but she was in there. And at the end of that season began the process where each night uh, a different girl would go and, and visit the king. And in the next morning she would, she would go and she'd go to another harem. The excess of that, the grossness of that, the, and listen, hear me very carefully, these women were not doing this out of their own um, decision. This was something being forced upon them. Now understand what that means. But through that process, even in the harem, Esther finds favor with those who are her captors and will eventually find favor with the king 
and the king will even choose her to be his queen. Now, we're going to, when I, we read the passage, we're going to pick it up right where Esther is in the context of the harem, and she's preparing to go in to visit the king on the night that's been chosen for her. And as we read this passage, I, I want you to have this in mind, these two things. Number one, the world in which Esther lives in is absolutely, totally messed up. Wickedness everywhere, unfairness, um, uh, abuse, all of the bad things, it is messed up. And Scripture does nothing to try to hide or cover over how messed up the world is. So chapters 1 and 2 of Esther are not a pretty picture. It is a messed up, wicked, defiled world where the king who rules things is ruling out of his own um, uh, uns uh, unsatisfied sense of, uh, of, uh, of wickedness. And so that's where Esther is. And yet, here's the second thing I want you to see. Even in the context of a world absolutely, totally messed up, over it all is a God who is sovereign over everyone and everything. And that's the theme. In fact, if you, as we walk through this book together, the theme you will hear me use over and over again is God's sovereignty. And so that's why today we, we're talking about God is sovereign. So we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 2, verse 9. If you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand. Now, Esther's in your Old Testament right after the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 9 is where we're going to pick up. And it is speaking about Esther in verse 9 when it says, And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen, uh, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her uh, advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Hasherias, after being 12 months under the regulations of uh, for the women, since this was the regular period of their, uh, their uh, beautifying, six months with oil of uh, myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody uh, um, of uh, Shahazaz, the, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what uh, Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Asarias, into his royal palace in, in, the, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all 
the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So as we move through uh, Esther, I want you to understand this is not a fairy tale. This is not a story about happy ever after. This is a story of a subjected people being used without regard by the king according to his whims. Esther is not autonomous actor in this. She is trying to survive in a very, very difficult place. And as we consider what Esther does and what God is doing over this, I want us to see these three things out of this passage. Number one, there are great, great consequences to living in a broken world. So I want to talk about the consequences of brokenness. And, and I hope as we walk through those that you will identify those as present in our world today. Secondly, I want us to consider how God is working. If all we talked about was the brokenness of the world, we'd leave here very much depressed. In fact, you know, you could ask the question, is the world getting worse? And most of us probably would go, seems that way. And I don't think you'd be wrong. The only, the only pushback against that is it's never been better. It's just always been broken since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. And if that's all you had, then it would be very depressing indeed. But dear friends, the hope that we see in this passage is that even in the brokenness of this world, God is working. And then if we have time this morning, I want to speak about how to understand what it means when the Bible says about Esther that she won, the, that God was giving her favor with those around her. Let's begin with the consequences of brokenness. Now, I've already kind of set the story up with you about what's happening here. And it everywhere you look, in fact, I really struggled this week with how to sum up these first two chapters because we really could talk at very length about how messed up it was. You can talk about how messed up the culture is. You can talk about how messed up the governing powers are. For that matter, you can even talk about how messed up the Jews are. Mordecai and Esther are Jews culturally, religiously, and yet at the same time, they're not living completely righteous lives. If you know the story of Daniel, when he was taken into captivity by, by the Babylonians, and you may remember he kept to the, the diet, the, the dietary restrictions that God had put in the law for them, but you don't see that here with Mordecai and Esther, probably because in a lot of ways their lives were, were very secular in, in the way they were living it, and yet we see the sovereignty of God. But before we get there, let's begin with the, 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 the reality of the consequences of brokenness, and the very big one is that when you live in a context of brokenness, that the world then is controlled by desire. Desire rules the world. The Bible makes very clear that, that one, uh, one of the testimonies of salvation is self-control. In other words, self-control is, is part of the fruit of the gospel in our lives that separates us from those who don't know Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes about those who don't know Jesus. And he says, But understanding this, that in the last days there will come times, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, uh, um, uh, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. King Asherias was not controlled by wisdom. And so when you read the first chapter of Esther and you read of these parties and tremendous decisions being made while inebriated, you understand that the king was controlled not by wisdom, but he was controlled by pleasure and desire. Uh, in fact, he was not only controlled by his pleasure and desire, but those around him were able to use his pleasure and desire to control him as well. He was controlled by his drunkenness. He was controlled by desire to impress others. He was controlled by desire to, to look powerful. He was controlled by desire to know, to have immediate satisfaction. He was controlled by this insatiable desire for carnal pleasure. He was, at that moment, likely the most powerful man in all the world. He was the king of the great nation that was ruling other nations. He was a man who could command vast armies, but he could not control himself. Friends, when you live in the context of brokenness, you are controlled by desire. One of the commentators that I read often, a man by the name of Wearsby writes, he says, this mighty monarch could control everything but himself. His advisors easily influenced him. He made imp uh, 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 terrible decisions that he later regretted. And when he didn't get his own way, he became angry. He was susceptible to flattery. He was a master of a mighty empire, but not the master of himself. Friends, when desire rules and there is little or nothing to restrain, there will be much destruction and brokenness. The king could do whatever he, want, he pleased without regard to others around him. Now, we see that. If you'll pay attention, we see this reality all around us. Presently, as our culture rejects the restraints of the past and celebrates the, an unrestrained hedonism, there will be greater and greater destruction and brokenness around us. The cost of being controlled by desire are both to the, to the one controlled by the desire and to everyone related to them. And so you see a king here who is being controlled by others because he's controlled by desire. And as a consequence, all those around him suffer because of being controlled by desire. As a result, the vulnerable are not protected. That is the reality of living in the context of brokenness. In every society, there are the powerful and there are the weak. There are the rich and there are the poor. There are those who have access to power and those who do not have access to power. And one of the ugly realities of these first two chapters is that the Jews find themselves vulnerable and unprotected, so much so that the Bible says Esther doesn't want to let anybody know who her kinfolks are. She doesn't want anybody to know that she's a Jew because she understands to reveal that information about her probably would put her life in danger. There are two realities happening at the same time here. Number one, God is and will protect his people from being annihilated. And secondly, in the present, individuals are unprotected from the wicked desires of the powerful. So the over sort of theme overall is that God is moving and providing a way to keep his people from total genocide, total annihilation. And yet in the present moment, Mordecai and Esther and all of their kinfolks find themselves in a very precarious position. Esther would not have chosen to be in the king's harem. 
Esther would be required to please the king. That's not something that she would desire. Later in the book, we'll see that the, the Jews are threatened with genocide by a man by the name of Haman. And the reality, friends, that we must reckon with is when brokenness is rampant, the vulnerable stand unprotected, and that produces great suffering. Being ruled by desire and the lack of protection for the vulnerable leads to tremendous, tremendous suffering. Now, if you pay attention, you'll see it all over our world today as well. One of the places that I see this most starkly represented is in the, in, in the question of abortion today. Our culture is ruled by desire, even to the extent of separating sexual relations with a natural and God-intended outcome of those relations. And so we are ruled by desire, and then who is, it's, who is in danger? Who finds themselves unprotected? It's the very unborn within their mother's wombs. I heard it said one time, and it has rung in my ear ever since, the most dangerous place to be in the United States of America today is within the womb of your mother. On the playgrounds, we will pad the ground, so if you fall, you won't get a bruise. We cover up the receptacles and try to do everything we can to keep any boo-boo and any hard thing happening to babies, and yet it is insatiable in our culture today, the desire to murder and to kill babies. Sinful brokenness brings great suffering. We should view Esther um, as one who is suffering. And when we see the suffering of this world that has come because of the sinful brokenness, our hearts should break with compassion and not judgment. Now listen to me. If that's where we ended today, end of chapter 1, even, even in, the, in the context of what we read today in chapter 2, that is a depressing moment. It's a depressing moment, but I want you to see something else here, and that is that God is working. He never stopped. He'll never stop. God is working. Now, here is a good word for you. No matter where you are today, no matter what's going on in your life, and no matter how messed up it is, God has not forgotten about you. An honest reading of the first two chapters of this book is a very heavy read. It certainly could feel like in such time that, that God had abandoned and forgotten his people. But this is the very testimony of Esther that in the darkest of dark moments, God had not forgotten his people. Do you know there's something unique about the book of Esther? It is the only book in Scripture that does not mention God by name. And yet, like every other passage of Scripture, his testimony, his hand, his power is over every word. God knew what challenges and threats were coming. God knew that there was an affrontal attack on the Jews in an attempt to annihilate them, to, 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 to wipe them off the face of the earth, and he was providing help and deliverance even before it, Jews knew to ask for it or knew their trouble was coming. In the darkest moment of sin's consequence, it often feels like you have been forgotten. But here is a precious truth for us to hold on to. Listen to me carefully. No matter how dark your present situation is, no matter how bad it is, no matter how deep you are, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how long it's been, no, long, no matter how desperate it feels, God knows right where you are. 
God knows right what you need, and God has not forgotten you for one half second. Somebody say amen. Esther and Mordecai had to feel like that they were making their way on their own and trying to live according to their own wits, trying to make the best of a messed up, broken situation. But in that moment of darkness, in that moment of almost total destruction, whether they knew it or not, God was already working to provide for them, to protect them, and to deliver them. God has not forgotten you, and God is already working for redemption. God was, and we'll get to this in later weeks, but God was going to save his people from the murderous threats of a man named Haman. Now, we'll, we'll, I'll introduce him to you later, and it's a pretty cool story what happens to him. God was going to provide for his people to return to the promised land, even through Persia and the, by the help of Persia. God was planning and providing for the redemption of his people. And in the moment, it was hard to see how God was going to do any of that. It was hard. In fact, you might even say it was impossible for them to see how God was going to do any of that. In later sermons, we'll see how in faith, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, trusted that God was working to redeem. Here's what we should take from this testimony of Scripture. God is always working according to his redemptive plan. Did you hear me? God is always working according to his redemptive plan. You may not be able to see it. You may not be able to figure out how God is going to do it. You may not even know the trouble that's coming your way. But God is always working according to his redemptive plan. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how bad things have gotten, no matter if we can see it or not, your present situation may be pretty messed up. Your present circumstances may be very dismal. No matter the details of the present, the sure hope of the future is that God is working his plan of redemption out according to his sovereign will. Because nothing is beyond the control of our God. Nothing is beyond the sovereign control of our God. One of the things that our preschool kids would learn in Awana in fact, I think it was the very first thing our preschool kids would learn in Awana is a three-word truth. They would say, God, anybody know this? God made, there's an Awana teacher, God made everything. Now, if you've ever been around preschoolers and Awana, that's not how they said it. They did not stand up there with their hands in their hand and say, God made everything. You with me? They'd put all the emphasis on everything. So it usually sounded something like this. God made, and then they would yell at the top of their lungs. I won't do that because my microphone will hurt your ears. Everything. And they liked that. We liked that. And you know, that made an impression upon me because you know, they, were, they were declaring a very fundamental truth. God did make everything. And because God made everything, he is sovereign over everything. Every time I heard them make that wonderful declaration, I was reminded of the sovereignty of God. And even now, when I, when I preach on, when I think on, when I read about the sovereignty of God, what's running through my head is God made everything. He has made everything. And thus, he is sovereign over everything. When King Asherias 
uh, thought he was, King Ashariah thought he was in charge, but you understand that every beat of his heart was according to the sovereign will of God. The great king of Persia thought he commanded armies, but do you understand every time his diaphragm contracted and, and air entered his lungs, it was according to the sovereign permission of God. Do you understand that he, even though he thought he could make declarations to put uh, his qu uh, king a queen away and, and elevate a new woman to be his queen, that every cell of his body functioned because God declared it so? His days were numbered by God, not by himself. He held the power of his kingship because God put him there and would hold it until God put him away. Everything is under the sovereign control of God. Kings and kingdoms, nations and armies, rulers and laws, mountains and seas, stars and planets, the animals, the birds, the fish of the sea, every man, every woman, every child, even every virus that floats in the air. Somebody say amen. Everything is under the sovereign control of the living God. He made everything. He controls everything. And because all is under the sovereign rule of God, nothing is outside of his command. No matter where you go, God is in control. Now, Esther and Mordecai were a long, long way away from the promised land. But they were no further from the sovereign control of God than, when they, than, than if they were standing on the steps of the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, dear friends, listen, we live in some difficult days, don't we? Don't we? If you don't believe me, watch the news a little bit. It's depressing. In fact, you'll feel better if you'll turn off the news a little bit. Get off Facebook. Get off Twitter. Read a good book for a change. It'll do good for your health. But this world's messed up, and frankly, it's not going to get any better. It's probably going to get worse. And that can be depressing. It can be overwhelming. But the hope over it all is that God is sovereign. There is not a king, a prince, or a president in power today but by the sovereign will of God. There is no nation that stands today nor no nation that will fall tomorrow that doesn't rise or fall according to the sovereign will of God. You today are alive not because you're of your ingenuity but because of the sovereign will of God. He made everything. He controls all things. Now, quickly, before we leave this passage, it doesn't really fit, but I want you to understand how this works uh, theologically. And as we think about this passage, all through this passage, there's this phrase that is used that Esther is, receives favor or wins favor. And you will hear people say this presently. They'll talk about, they're talking about that they are, uh, they're, they are blessed and highly favored. And th there's nothing wrong with saying those words if you said those words. But most of the time when I hear people say that, what they're talking about is that what they want, what they're doing, and their personal advancement is what they mean by I'm blessed and highly favored. Now, that's okay if you want to say that. But when the Scripture uses those phrases... It's not talking about your personal advancement. It's talking about the, the will of God. So very quickly, I just want to say these three things. God's favor is for his purpose. And we see, I think, in this passage clearly three ways that God's favor is working for his purpose. The first is favor and recognition. 
And so in verse 9, when we read this passage, it, it says, and the, and the young woman, that is Esther, pleased him, that is those who are gathering up the, 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 the virgins, uh, uh, pleased him and won favor. Now, that's not a beauty contest. What the Bible is saying there is not that Esther was prettier than the rest, but what the Bible is indicating is that there's a purpose of God for Esther to be in that harem. Listen, I, we don't have time for this this morning, but don't you know that there were some who hid their daughters? Don't you know there were some who <laughs> went and married the first guy they could find to try to avoid? This is not a pleasant thing that was going to happen to these women. And so when the Bible presents this to us, this is not presenting it to us as if Esther is having a great day. It is presenting it to us as though God is doing something for his purpose. And for his purpose, Esther finds favor. Favor in recognition. And then secondly, I want you to see there's a, there's a favor in wisdom. And so in verse 15, we, we read where Esther gets to choose anything out of the harem she wants to take with her as she goes to, to visit the king. No doubt she had watched other women go and, and had witnessed what they chose to bring. And all of them probably made decisions based on what would give them the greatest advantage. But what does Esther do? She, she calls on the, the man that serves the king and says, you tell me what to bring and whatever that is, I'll, I'll bring it. Because she understood that he knew best what pleased the king. Now there's some, that's a, listen, you think about all the consequences of that and the ramifications of that. That's pretty, there's some icky things in that. But I think we can say in that, and, and in fact, it, it talks about that, that Esther was growing and winning favor. And I think we can understand in that that God was giving Esther favor in wisdom and that she was wisdom according to God. And here's the point we're to make, not that Esther is smarter than all the other women, but that God was giving Esther wisdom so that his will and his purposes would be made manifest. And then, and then lastly, when the king receives Esther, we see that she is growing in, in favor of influence. So in, in verse 17, 18, and 19, in verse 17, it says that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Now, in your mind's eye, when you read that, don't think fairy tale love, okay? This is not Prince Charming. This is not happily ever after. Um, but what it is saying is that God moved in the heart of the king to recognize Esther over all of the other women. The NIV gets it, I think, probably the best here, where it says the king was attracted to Esther more than the other women. Still really messed up. Lots of weird, icky things about even this passage. But here's what I want you to understand. God was doing something. Vashti, the, the, the original queen, probably when Haman brings about his plan to annihilate the Jews would have been on, on Haman's side, participated in it. God was raising up a new queen to be in a position of influence to bring about his will and his purpose. We are to read this passage not as something that Esther has done that's, that outwitted the other women, not that Esther was prettier than the other women. We don't know, but what we are to read is that God was doing something, giving her favor with those who, who controlled the harem, giving her favor and wisdom to know which way to go, giving her favor with the king, and the ultimate reason for those things is for the, the will of God, the purposes of God to be brought about. God is always working according to his purpose. And when he blesses you, 
when he, when he uh, favors you, it is not just for your blessing. In fact, by the way, friends, when you participate in the will and wisdom of God and the purpose of God, sometimes that's a call to suffering. Sometimes it's a call to difficulty. But when God calls you into his purpose and favors you so that you can be used according to his purposes, it's always according to his purposes, not yours. I want to tell you a story. I, I love this story, and I've shared it with a few of you before, but I come back to it over and over again. Uh, best I can tell, it's true. In 2005, a 12-year-old girl, an Ethiopian girl, had a really horrible day. Seven violent men abducted her, 12 years old. They intended to force her into marriage. It was a custom there. She was ripped from her home. She was ripped from the street. She likely knew what was coming, her fate. The men held the girl for seven days, beating her repeatedly, trying to cause her to be submissive and broken in spirit and in body. Apparently, this is not uncommon in Ethiopia. The girls are typically beaten into submission, and they're often raped. In this particular instant, there was not a human being within earshot to hear the cries of this little girl. But the news report says, but her cries were heard. Here's where it gets kind of crazy. The heroes in this story are not people. They are Ethiopian lions. Apparently, these lions are famous for their large black manes. They're the national symbol of the country. As this little girl was crying and screaming, three Ethiopian lions arrive. Hearing her cry, they leapt from the bush and chased her captives away. Now there's the good news, right? But now the little girl has exchanged horror for horror. She's gone from being the captive of men who are beating her to now lions who are likely going to eat her. What they did is the lions came back after chasing her captors away and they sat in a circle around her. Crazy, right? A half day later when police arrived, the lions simply stood up and walked away. The police sergeant, I cannot say his name, Wandumu Widajo, I think is how you say it, said, Speaking of the lions, they stood guard until we found her, and then they just left her like a, a gift and went back into the forest. Now, experts have tried to explain it. They don't really know why the lions behave this way. This is not normal behavior for lions. They think that maybe her cries sounded like a, a hurt lion, and maybe they were paternal in their protection, but frankly, experts don't know. But here's what we do. Listen to me carefully on this one. 
Who is able to save Esther and her people when all seems lost? Is it not the God who raises kings into power and takes kings out of power? Is it not the God who kept Israel in the land and has allowed them to leave the land and will return them back to the land? Who is able to command kings and kingdoms? Is it not the God of all creation? It is the same God who commands the lions to deliver this little girl. It's the same God who commanded the lions to not eat Daniel. And the same God who is going to deliver Esther and Mordecai and all of her people. And that is the same God who delivers us today. Somebody say that. Oh, friends, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I know every time we meet, it is likely that one or two or more of us will not live to meet again with us. I don't know from Sunday to Sunday if it will not be true that the Lord will return before we're able to gather again. I don't know any of that. But I know this. There's not a breath in your lungs, a beat of heart in your chest that is not according to the sovereign will of God. And that gives me hope in a world that is messed up in a world that is broken because of sin. That gives me hope to say, my God has the whole world in his hand.